And so, Father, we bow humbly in your presence this morning, grateful for your grace in our lives, grateful for your faithfulness for another week, grateful for your hand of protection upon us and your hand of blessing. Father, thank you now for our Bibles that we take and we open and we receive a word from you. Thank you that you have spoken with clarity. Thank you that you have written a history and an account of your dealings with mankind so that we can know now how to live. Father, may our hearts be tender for the word. May your Holy Spirit have a great liberty to work in us. I pray that you'll take the message and apply it as needed in in many different ways today. You know our lives. You know our circumstances You know our struggles. Father, we just pray that we would be careful to be obedient people and to not fall into the trap of hearing but not doing. And so we give our focus and our attention to you and to your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Mom and Dad were watching TV. And mom said, I'm tired and it's getting late. I think I'll go to bed. So mom went to the kitchen to make sandwiches for the next day's lunches, rinsed out the popcorn bowls, took meat out of the freezer for supper the following evening, checked the cereal box levels, filled the sugar container, put spoons and bowls on the table, and started the coffee pot for brewing the next morning. She then put some wet clothes in the dryer, put a load of clothes into the wash, ironed a shirt, and secured a loose button. She picked up the game pieces left on the table, put the telephone book back in the drawer. She watered the plants, emptied a wastebasket, and hung up a towel to dry. She yawned and stretched and headed for the bedroom. She stopped by the desk, though, and wrote a note to the teacher, counted out some cash for the field trip, and pulled the textbook out from hiding under a chair. She signed a birthday card for a friend, addressed and stamped the envelope, and wrote a quick note for the grocery store. She, she put both near her purse. Mom then creamed her face, put on moisturizer, brushed and flossed her teeth, and trimmed her nails. Husband called. I thought you were going to bed. I'm on my way, she said. She put some water into the dog's dish and put the cat outside and then made sure the doors were locked. She looked in on each of the kids and turned out a bedside lamp, hung up a shirt, threw some dirty socks into the hamper, had a brief conversation with one up still doing homework in her own room. She set the alarm, laid out clothing for the next day, straightened up the shoe rack. She added three things to her list of things to do for tomorrow. About that time, old husband turned off the TV and announced to no one in particular, I'm going to bed. (laughs) And he did. (laughs) Moral of the story is that um, a mom is not a dad. Aren't you thankful for moms? Aren't you thankful for all they do for us? Moms, I want to ask you a question as we begin our message today. How are you doing out there under the circumstances? Are you really under the circumstances? And in fact, that's a question for all of us this morning. If we were to take the microphone and go up and down the aisles and ask you, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? How are you doing in living in grace? How are you doing in your walk of obedience? How are you doing in just maintaining a positive attitude? How are you doing in just being who God called you to be? 
I'm wondering if you felt safe enough to open your heart and speak the truth. If you would say, you know, sometimes I'm not sure what's happening. I think about some young mothers who have little babies and they're so tired and they don't get a night's sleep and they don't know what to do with a crying, croupy baby or they can't seem to get their house back in order or a mom with some toddlers who when they do get their house in order, it's ripped apart or a mom with some teens who can never get her hair done because she's always pulling her hair out and, and, and then dad doesn't seem to pay attention and, and ever since we had kids, it seems like mom and dad's relationship has changed and then you have working mothers and mothers who are out there spinning all these plates and they don't know how to hold it together. And you have stay-at-home moms who they struggle and everybody thinks they don't have anything to do and, and they're so busy they don't know how a work, a work outside the home mom does it. And you got homeschool moms and how do they do it? And, and they no sooner get done with this year and they've got to go to the book fair to plan next year and, and on it goes. So how are you doing under the circumstances? I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12 today and... In the context of Mother's Day, I do want to challenge moms and encourage moms, but it's a message for all of us today as we continue through our series in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 12 now, and three weeks ago today, we left off in Genesis. Then we had Tom and Heidi Jesserin present their ministry in Nigeria. And then last week, I appreciate Sam Erickson filling in on me in relatively short notice as we kind of at the last minute fit in a, a week of a week off, uh, didn't vacation, vacation. We just tried to slip below the radar and get some things done around the house and just catch our breath a little bit. And it's good to be back in the fellowship this morning. I trust that you'll have an open heart for the word this morning as we see in the life of Abram, he's still Abram, this key character in the book of Genesis through whom God has promised to build an entire nation. We're going to begin reading right at the beginning of chapter 12 and and though our text, we've already covered this as we've going verse by verse, passage by passage through Genesis, we see that this Abram was a man who was, who was raised, if you take time to read the end of chapter 11, you know that he was raised by his father Terah and a couple of uncles, and he has a nephew Lot whose father died, and now Abram is raising him. He's married, actually, who's his half-sister Sarai. And then one day, and we don't know how, but this is what we covered three weeks ago today, God spoke to Abram, and he said to Abram, even though you, he didn't, I don't know if God said this, but this is what Abram worshipped the moon. We know in Ur of the Chaldees that they were pagan moon worshippers. They did not worship the one true God. But God came and spoke to Abram and said, out of you, I'm going to raise up a nation. I want you to follow after me. And we notice in the book of Genesis, don't we, a cycle. We see Man walking with God, obeying God, believing God, allowing God to fulfill his plan through him. And then we see man adrift, don't we? And we see the next generation come up and he turns away from God. And, and ultimately the world is populated with, with evil and with wickedness. And in chapter 6, the story of the flood where God wiped, then Noah walked with God. And then it downgraded from there. And we just have these cycles and now we have God Still seeking after man. Still saying, I desire your fellowship. I want you to pay attention here. Let's restore the fellowship of the garden that was once lost through my grace. And he's going to do a special work through Abram. Let's read it in chapter 12, verse 1. Get back in the context of the passage. And the Lord willing, the next several weeks will be in Genesis. I want to encourage you to be here for the messages. 
Um, I'll tell you, there are some powerful messages that God has for us from his word in the upcoming weeks as we deal with Lot and his head turning away from God and towards worldliness and a challenge to fathers standing for righteousness and leading our homes in righteousness in the middle of what a wicked and, and difficult world in which we live. So I challenge you to be here. Let's go Genesis 12. Now follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'm reading out of the New International Version, chapter 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram left, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now our text, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me because, but, let, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, she's my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. What an interesting story we have. What an interesting man and what an interesting chapter in his life. We have to respect Abram, and the Word of God clearly says, we won't take time to look there right now, we will be revisiting Hebrews 11 throughout. And if you don't know where to read your Bible this week, you might be encouraged by reading, uh, especially coming off this message today. Read Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11 verse 8, it says that Abram, Abraham was commended for his faith because when God spoke to him, he got up and he went. Now we know from the text here in chapter 11 and chapter 12 that through the negative influence probably of his father Terah 
and the lack of faith there, Abram yielded to his father and for some time was delayed at Haran before he carried out in obedience what God had communicated to him to go and enter a land that God would give him. And this is the beginning of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you with children. It's going to become a great nation. We'll visit this in chapter 15. And God is going to point up at the stars of the sky. And he's going to say to Abraham, Abraham, look at the sky. Look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. At this point, Abram and Sarai are still childless. So we don't know the end of the story yet, but God has a plan. And in God's providence and in God's wisdom and in God's sovereign direction for Abram's life, he said, I want you to go now to a place that I'm going to show you. You see, we know the end of the story, but Abram didn't know the end of the story. Can you imagine? So after his dad died, finally they had moved from Ur to Haran. And then finally his father died. They had accumulated more wealth. They had accumulated more people, perhaps even followers of God, through Abraham's testimony and worship. People and animals and his wealth was accruing. And then one day, Abram had to take a shower, put on his deodorant, put on a clean shirt and say, Sarai, baby, today's the day we go. And you know, we talked about that, that act of faith. Where are we going? I don't know. God said to go. We're going. He said he would show us. He's back in his camel down the driveway. His neighbor's over there watering his lawn. And he looks over. He sees that, that Abram's got the U-Haul all packed and he's heading out of Dodge. His neighbor says, yo, Abraham, where are you going? And imagine, you know, it's, we read it. We accept it. We think it. We don't think much of it. But imagine that moment when Abram stepped out in faith, believing God. The Lord told me to go. I'm going. Where are you going, Abraham? Oh, uh, don't know. You don't know where you're going? Nope, don't know. That Abraham, he's nuts. Faith looks ridiculous sometimes, doesn't it? And so Abraham takes off. And, you know, it's interesting how the Bible works. With the least amount of text we get a tremendous amount of volume under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Moses is recording the history of Israel for them, probably as they're wandering in the wilderness and he's writing down this book of beginnings. He gives them just enough detail that we can know what happened. He gets in the land. We see that he went from the top of the land down to the bottom, then back up to the middle. He set up altars. He worshiped the Lord. But we also know from verse uh, 6, I believe, that um, the land, verse 5, at the end of verse 5, the land of Canaan is what it's called. And in verse 6, it says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Listen, if you think at Ur of the Chal in Chaldea, at Ur, if you think the moon worshipers were pagan, they're nothing probably compared to the pagan lifestyle and the re false religions in Canaan. That's the land of the Canaanites. And they are the ones who are the Baal worshipers. These are the ones who offer their babies on in, in religious ritualistic sacrifice and murder their babies and so forth. They're a horrible, horrendous, wicked people. We're going to talk more about them in chapter 15. We're going to talk specifically about one of the biggest problems why skeptics don't follow God today and why people don't like the Bible. And it is because God wipes people off the face of the earth. You have to keep coming. I have no idea when that message will get here. It's in chapter 15. It's coming. And the Canaanites are there. And it's not time for Abram to possess the land, but he's in the land. And did you notice that God said, this is the land. The verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, I'm going to give you this land. This is it. 
And then without any detail, we transition at verse 10, and we know what happened next. We don't know exactly how much time went by, but at verse 10, it says just abruptly, now there was a famine in the land. Now let's break down our text this morning. We have to move along, so listen quickly, please. I'm going to give you eight words that begin with D that will break down this story into a flow of what's happening. And the first thing we have is we have a drought. We have a drought. There's famine in the land. And in Canaan, it didn't rain enough for enough time. Enough months have gone by. The crops haven't grown. Evidently, the animals are even migrating, trying to find feed. And there's no food to eat for humans. And so, evidently, this creates then a, a natural movement to, to places where there is food. And in this case, they go to Egypt. They're heading to the south-southwest into Egypt. And they have to know, down there, there's a huge river. It's the river the Nile. Okay? And the Nile River was used by the Egyptians to irrigate the fertile valley there. And so they could grow food, even in pretty incredible dry seasons. The river was large enough. Maybe along the lines of, it's probably not quite as big, but along the lines of our Mississippi River where the Mississippi Basin, there's water there for a long time even after everything else has dried up. So there's drought. And you think for a minute, well, what's wrong with that? And at first in the story we see no reason to think that there's any problem and the text doesn't identify a problem. But there is a problem that's going to come up in the story. And when you step back from the next, from the next few verses, you realize, Abram, you really blew it. Because the second thing we have in our story is that we have doubt. The drought brought on doubt in, Adam's, in, Adam, in Abram's mind. It goes like this. Abram knew that God had spoken to him. Abram knew that he had gotten to the land that God had promised him. Abram knew that he was in the will of God. Abram knew that he was walking in obedience. And then he wakes up and there's nothing to eat. And then he wakes up and there's no water to take a shower. And then do you know, have you been there? Lord, I've tried to please you. Lord, I've been trying to walk by faith. Lord, I don't understand everything you're doing in my life. But Lord, I want to tell you something. It's getting mighty uncomfortable here. And I'm beginning to doubt that you're paying attention to me. And I think that's exactly what starts happening with Abram. In the middle of the drought, he begins to doubt God's plan of blessing for his life. With that doubt comes discouragement, doesn't it? I heard a man in a book I have, in a little chapter on discouragement, he wrote something I read in college I've never forgotten, and I think it's right. To be discouraged it just is to show disbelief in God's plan of blessing for your life. All of a sudden, this great man of faith doesn't know if he has enough faith to just stay where God led him. You see, the problem with him moving of being filled with doubt is that number three, it creates a detour. It creates a detour. I don't think it was ever God's plan for Abram to go into Egypt. God had brought him in the land. He had led him by faith and he was going to sustain him by faith. You see, the problem with going into Egypt, look up in chapter 12, verse one, is that it's not the land. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And now Abram, on his own wisdom, without considering God's mind, is leaving the land and he's going the way that everyone else is going. Isn't that easy to do? Well, Lord, it only makes sense. Lord, this is a, this is a logical move. 
You'd have to be a moron to not see that we got to go to Egypt where there's some food to eat. Oh, so God is limited in his ability to take care of you? Oh, so God brought you this far to starve you? Come on, Abram, you're missing the point here. There's a drought, there's doubt, there's a detour. And here's what happens. Functioning in his own strength now, walking by sight instead of walking by faith, Abram begins to take one mini step after another and gets himself in high weeds. Look at verse 10. We now have deceit. We have deceit. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. As, verse 11, he was about to enter Egypt, he, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And guys, that's a pretty good line, I think. You know, you can use that line. Honey, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Except after this message, you know he's up to something. I don't know how this happened. Some people say, well, wait a minute. Three weeks ago, you said that Abram, one of the points of application that we made was that even in our later years, God sometimes asks us to do difficult things and to live by faith. And we know that Abram was 75 years old at this time. Maybe a year of wandering to get where he was. Maybe he's 76 years old. We know from chapter 17, verse 17 in Genesis, you don't have to turn there, 17, 17, we know from that passage that Sarai is 10 years younger. So she's about 65, 66. And you say, wait a minute, how beautiful can she really be? We're going to find out later when she finally does have the son of promise, Isaac, that she laughs when she hears about it. She's about 100 years, she's 100 years old at that time. And she laughs, and we know from the New Testament that it says her body was as good as dead at 100. We also know from a later passage in Genesis that she's going to die when she's 127 years old. So the patriarchs lived a little longer. They didn't live as long as the, the antediluvians did around the flood time. The lifespan of man is coming down to 70 years, according to the psalmist, three score and 10 years. But Abram and these guys are living now up, up to 150 years. It really happened. It's not that far-fetched. Sarai's going to die at 127. If she's going to have a child at 100, and that's per, she's pretty old then, she's 65 now. When Abram looks at her, is, is this just a husband trying to get some mileage? We find out later that it's not because we know that the, we know that the servants of Pharaoh are going to see her and they're going to go to their boss and say, boss, we found a really pretty one for you. And so she really is beautiful. And so people say, well, how can that be? Well, 127 to 65. You know what? I would say that she's, she's just really gracefully entering the, the middle years. I have to choose my words carefully right now. <laughs> she's like some beautiful 40-year-old actress or something that's still the envy of, of much of the... Uh, glamour world or whatever. Still holding it together. Still a beautiful woman. So I'd say I can compare it. So it's, it's not unreasonable. 
I don't know how this happens, but Abram's riding on his donkey or whatever. He's got Sarah and her donkey, and they're riding down into Egypt. And maybe they're coming to some of these outskirting towns and communities. And they realize, oh, we've got a cultural shift here. We're entering a new land. And he, he's looking as they pass through these communities. And maybe they're going to a more urban area where maybe there's a whole migration or actually um, a, almost like a refugee line heading down there out of Canaan because of the hunger. And he realizes something about these guys in Egypt. They practice polygamy. They've got many wives. And then he realizes, I'm a foreigner. Nobody even knows I'm here. You know, these guys could whack me and get my wife. She's beautiful. And now being the big man that he is, wives, moms today, don't you really respect this guy? Honey, you're really pretty. I've got a little plan for us. Why don't we say when we get there that you're my, you know, my sister? Let's really emphasize that part of our relationship because we do know in chapter 20, verse 12, that they shared a common father, that Abram really did marry his half-sister. They had different mothers. And so that's true technically, even though we've got this, you know, this whole other agreement and arrangement now and we're, you know, husband and wife. And Abram in his lack of faith, in his own human logic, is now entering into a world of deceit and deception. But you have to know that something happens in number five is the word dilemma. Dilemma. Boys and girls that are here, you listen closely. Everybody who's 16 and above already knows it, even though they keep trying to do it. When you tell one lie, what do you have to do? You have to tell another lie. And when you tell another lie, what do you have to do? You have, to, you have to tell another lie. And oh, we get in all these mixed up arrangements and we weave these tangled webs, don't we? Trying to cover ourselves over here and trying to figure our way out over here and smudging the truth over here. And the next thing you know, nobody even knows I'm a man of God. Nobody even knows that my name's recorded in Hebrews 11 and I'm a great man of faith. I am a wimp hiding behind my wife's apron strings, apron skirts, and I'm trying to protect myself by calling my wife my sister. What a disgrace. It's another D word you can add it anywhere you want. Disgrace. The dilemma is this. Chapter uh, 12 again, verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. It's as simple as this. In the culture of the day, much like we see many years later, and these are the kinds of of world powers that Solomon looked at and learned from. Remember, Solomon had, what, 300-some wives and 700 concubines? He's got a big dormitory built out back of the palace and he's got over a thousand women at his disposal. One of the arrangements that powerful kings made for themselves when they conquered a land was they would say, tell you what, I'll leave you alone if you give me that one daughter of yours right over there. Let's just let the whole world know that we've really, we've negotiated a peace deal and I'm going to marry one of your daughters or even take one of his wives. And so a subservient king who wants, he doesn't want his country sacked by a more powerful king would marry off his daughters and even some of his wives and beautiful women to the king of the other country and it kind of helped keep peace. And so these guys lived with all these beautiful women at their disposal for their personal pleasure and their godless lifestyle. Well, Pharaoh's servants are out checking things out. They see this beautiful foreign woman coming in and they say, hey, the boss will like that one. And they want some 
kudos. They want some brownie points from their boss. So they go trotting back home to Pharaoh's court and say, Hey, Pharaoh, wrote out some paperwork for you, got one for you. This is a beautiful woman. Pharaoh says, Good, take her out, put her in a dormitory. One of the things people always want to know is, Did Sarai ever make it to Pharaoh's bedroom? I was interested to find that in multiple commentaries, there's a little bit of a disagreement on this. Some speculate that perhaps it indeed did happen. Others lean towards the view that it did not. I lean towards the view that it did not happen, largely just for this reason. We can't prove it. If you can't prove it exegetically and it doesn't say it in the Bible, you've got to back off of your view. You don't know what it said. But commonly in the Old Testament, and it and unless Moses just didn't want to say it, unless it's kind of a, it is a shameful chapter in Abram's life. And he just doesn't want to give all the details. But it's likely that he could have easily said, and Pharaoh took Sarai into his palace and he lay with her there. That's that simple phrase, and he lay with her. That's a common, familiar Old Testament phrase, isn't it? For a man and a woman coming together in this manner. It doesn't say that in the text. We don't know for sure. And I think it's also likely. Do you remember the big beautiful, the beauty pageant that Queen Esther went through when uh, there was a new king, new queen being sought in the book of Esther in our Old Testament? And they went through a beauty pageant for about a year before they even got to be chosen as one of his wives. And they were held out in the on the grounds there in arrangement of living arrangement where they were worked on all their beauty and their poise and their education and all the things that went on with it to be part of this group of ladies. I suspect that a good bit of time perhaps would go by before Sarai would be chosen to actually be the one to go to the king's room. So I suspect not. But Abram sure has himself in a dilemma now, doesn't he? He's, I've been deceitful. I've told him that She's my sister. You see, the, the arrangement here would be this. And you see what happened. Verse 16, He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Van, the Lord's really blessing this scumbag. Look at man, he gives his wife over as his sister, and the Lord still blesses him. I want to tell you something. Just because you have a lot of material blessings doesn't mean God is blessing you. Or sometimes, according to 2 Timothy 3, And you've been here, haven't you? I know I have. Even when I am faithless, he is faithful. And this is the word grace. When God gives me something I do not deserve. Abram is still God's man. God is still at work in Abram's life. He's still going to get him where he wants to go. He's still going to be commended for his faith in obeying God and doing what God said. So God does give him increase. We're going to see in chapter 13 that right away... This material wealth, his blessing, will become his curse. It's going to create conflict. But there he is, on the outside looking blessed, on the inside. What do you think Abram's thinking? How am I going to get out of this mess? And evidently he's praying to God by now. Lord, I'm in a fix. My wife is stuck. I cannot remove her now without getting killed. I've been paid a dowry. I'm her older brother. They... They believed what I said and they thought she was eligible to marry and so they gave me a dowry. They gave me gifts in exchange for my sister. I didn't mean for it to go that way. The next thing we see though in God's grace and mercy, he sends disease. Number six, we see disease. Look at it, verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram 
What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? And can you hear in the words number seven, disgust? You see, God is always in control. God is sovereign over the affairs of men. He even takes the wickedness of the wicked and he'll turn it. He'll use it to fulfill his and accomplish his plans. God is never out of control. No matter who's the king, no matter what country you're in, no matter how big and pompous they think they are, they're never in control. And in this situation, all God had to do is just send out a little disease. Their skin starts breaking out. A little bit of pus coming out of sores all over everybody, including the king, just changes everybody's outlook. And they're miserable. They're sick. They're wretched. Somehow they figure out that it's a curse from Almighty God and they figure out that it's related to Sarah. It kind of reminds you of Jonah, doesn't it? Uh, on the ship, on the way to Tarsus. And the sailors figure out it's because of this guy. Throw him overboard. And that's kind of what Pharaoh's doing. Throw him overboard. And it's interesting in a footnote, isn't it? That when Abram leaves Egypt, he leaves bestowed with gifts. Do you know a story coming up in the book of Exodus when God's people leave Egypt bestowed with gifts? God has a way of turning things around, doesn't he? Even in Abram's faithlessness. And so because of the disease, Pharaoh is especially disgusted, not so much with the disease, but with the chicanery that's gone on. And listen to the voice as Pharaoh speaks there, can't you? Why did you say? Why did you say? Why did you tell me she was your sister? What's wrong with you? And Pharaoh deports Abram, Abram is deported, number eight, in shame and disgrace. I suspect that the famine is still ongoing in Canaan. What do you think? And he's back up where he belongs, and God is going to provide for him. God has ways. Yeah, he waits till the last minute. Sometimes it's a little boy's lunch that gets divided. I don't know if that's the Lord speaking to us or not. I think it's time, and they're cutting the lights, you know. This show's going to end one way or another. Five more minutes. Okay, Sobolski? Five minutes. Where was I? He's the little boy, God's provision, right? He's back up in Canaan. He's still, there's still famine there. He's tried to, to work and manipulate the circumstances. He's been overwhelmed by the circumstances. Listen, Abraham, like us, in the middle of overwhelming circumstances, became weak in his obedience, didn't he? He didn't reject God. He just didn't really believe God. Weak in obedience. He became self-reliant. You see, you see him focused on the circumstances. He gets under the circumstances. He makes a prayerless decision. He compromises himself. He lacks integrity now. And he has disgraced his testimony before Pharaoh. How is Abram going to say to Pharaoh, By the way, I am a God-fearing man. You need to turn to God. He has no credibility for his testimony. I wonder how many of us have wasted the opportunities that God has given us for influence because of the lack of credibility, because of a lack of integrity in our lives. Let's just wrap it up like this. Let's just stop and take a reality check as we, as we land this plane and get out of here. I want you to think about this. In the middle of all this, 
Abram obeys God. He goes to Canaan. And he is exactly, would you agree with me? He is exactly where God wanted him to be. He was exactly in the will of God. He was, he was precisely where God wanted him to be. And it's most commendable. But then there's a famine that comes up. I call that, number one, extreme difficulty. He's, think about it. He's in the middle of a famine in Canaan. He's in God's will, but it's extremely difficult. Extreme difficult leads then to number two, personal confusion. Lord, I know you brought me here. Lord, I believe your word, but this is really getting uncomfortable. And now, Lord, I'm really getting confused about what I'm supposed to do. And then we take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to look at the world around us and we do what everybody else does. We run to Egypt. I want you to see then finally too, thirdly, that in the middle of God's blessing in Canaan, where he was supposed to be starving, waiting on God for provision, he had to experience a delayed blessing to it all. Abram, actually in his lifetime, never does completely live out all of the blessing that God promised through him to his descendants. Here's the point. How are you doing in your circumstances? Are you where God wants you? What's going on in your life? Now, could be that you've taken your eyes off the Lord and you are now focused on the extreme difficulties of your life. You're beginning to doubt God. You're beginning to look at Egypt. Where am I going to run to? Proverbs says, It is the name of the Lord that is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. We don't run to Egypt, we run to the Lord. In the extreme difficulty, though, we sit in our tent at night and we contemplate around the fire why this doesn't feel right to me because of the delayed blessing. I might be exactly where God wants me, but the way God wants to bless me hasn't come yet. And don't believe the televangelists who say that if you're walking with Jesus, you're going to just you know, drive a pink Cadillac and you're going you're gonna to... They have a wallet full of money or God's not blessing you. That's utter nonsense. It's shameful. They're going to have to answer to God. And some of those guys aren't even going to be in heaven, I would predict. They're charlatans and shams. It's not God's word. Abram would have been right where God wanted him to be. And he would have been actually scraping up for food, depending for his daily bread on a daily basis, waiting for God to provide for him. But didn't he say, there's no testing or temptation taking you. That is not common on demand, but God is faithful. He will live along with the testing and provide a way out of it. Didn't he say, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. They don't plant, they don't, they don't have farms, but I feed them, I take care of them. Why don't you just turn to me, Abram? Instead, the extreme difficulty made him take his eyes off the Lord, made him focus on himself. He became personally confused in the middle of a delayed blessing. Are you willing to do like Psalm 37 says and to wait upon the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord and let him bring to pass his plan in your life? Some of you are ready to bail. Some of you are really confused about God's plan for your life. And I'm not saying it's always simple to untangle the past. I am saying the will of God for you starts right now. Are you willing to suffer a little bit in the middle of your circumstances to wait on God to deliver you instead of making up your own deliverance? This brings intention, personal responsibility, and the sovereignty of God. I know that. 
And yes, God expects us to think clearly. But don't make a prayerless decision like Abram did heading down into Egypt. I was checking out my emails. I can't remember if I said this earlier in the service or not. I said it in the first service. I'm confused. You know that. Being gone all week out of the office, last night I slipped in the office and was reading my email. I had tried to stay away from my cell phone and my email all week. And I received, we gotten some emails from Stephen and Kirsten. I said it during prayer time, didn't I? Something I didn't tell you is that Steve said that a few weeks ago, Kirsten had an accident when she was out driving. And I won't go into the details, but it wasn't her fault. And they finally got it settled. And they were, they were guilty, held guilty, and had to pay $400 for the whole thing to go away. Stephen's very frustrated. Here they've got the rebellion going on. He's, his, Silas, he said, in the, he said in, the, in the email, he said, please pray for Silas. He's their, their 11-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy. He's throwing up. He's got diarrhea. A couple months ago, he, he wrote about uh, their oldest girl standing there watching a worm inside the skin of her foot crawl up her foot. Playing with worms inside my foot, Mommy. He said he came home from that decision and he was so upset. He said, for the last three days I've been sitting in our house contemplating how a Christian who worships a just God deals with a culture that has no justice. You think Stephen and Kirsten are sitting in their house at night saying, Lord, I believe we're in God's will, but we are really uncomfortable right now. And I am personally confused. Where is the blessing you promised? Sometimes right in the middle of God's will is one of the most difficult places you will ever live. Are you willing to wait on him? I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Stephen's closing words were faithful and strong. They're depending on the Lord for wisdom. I don't know what God's plan is for their lives. They'll have to process it. We need to pray, of course, for their safety and protection. As we bow before the Lord, can I challenge you as we go? We've got to conclude here tonight, this morning. Soon it'll be night. How has the Lord taken this testimony of failure in Abram's life and prompted you? Maybe there was a time in your life when you were heading for blessing. And then you took your eyes off the Lord and you put them on the circumstances and you began to doubt and you became very confused and you are so unsure of what God is doing and you're really frustrated with waiting on God. Can I tell you, keep waiting. Keep delighting in the Lord. Keep walking in obedience. He will sustain you. He will not drop you. He will be faithful. And those of you who've been faithless lately, Can you see God's faithful hand in your life in spite of your faithlessness? Some of us need to confess our faithlessness as sin before the Lord, don't we? We need to to come in underneath his authority once again. Listen, he's a faithful friend. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Return to him today or ask him even now to strengthen you in the midst of whatever the circumstances are in which you find yourself. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you once again, anew and afresh. We want to be obedient. We do see your hand of blessing around us, and yet it's so easy to go the way of everyone else and head to Egypt when we're supposed to stand still in the place that you've brought us. 
Father, for those who are at the breaking point, for those who are ready to come up with their own scheme and their own plan, maybe even deceive themselves out of what they're in, I pray that you would grab a hold of them. Help us to realize and recognize that delayed blessing is worth waiting upon. And that it's in your presence that we find peace of mind and we put away personal confusion. Thank you for walking with us along this journey. And as we continue to study Genesis and learn from the lives of these important Bible characters, would you please help us to grow in grace, to be the men and the women, the church that you want us to be in a world that's flying from together. May a watching world look at us and say there's something different about you people. And then may we be able to invite them in and tell them about Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his name I pray. Amen.